Nancy, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Close-Up. I'm here with Andy again. Hi Andy. Hi Sam. And today we want to talk about a genre, a film genre, that we have a weak spot for. One that you've suggested Andy and brought to the table for this episode. The genre is called Hacksploitation. And in this episode we're going to find out what that is what kind of movies came under it, what movies we saw and are going to take apart, for examples, and ask the question, well, is exploitation dead or does that still matter today? So Andy, I think we need to have a little bit of context. What is exploitation exactly? Well, exploitation, or also the so-called psychobiddy movies, um, or psychobiddy uh, is a film subgenre that combines elements of horror, thriller, and women's film genres. So other names for this subgenre are Grand Dame Guignol, Hagsploitation, or Hag Horror. The subgenre combines concept of the Grand Dame, um, that's a theatrical term for an elderly, well-known and well-traveled lady, with the concept of Le Grand Guignol. Le Grand Guignol was an early 20th century theater in Paris and specialized in graphic, naturalistic horror shows. The roots of this kind of spectacle go way back to the Elizabethan theater with Shakespeare plays like uh, Titus Andronicus, for example. And they live on today in the genre of splatter horror movies. Grand Guignol has become a general term for graphic emerald horror entertainment, and the films of Grand Dame Guignol or Psychobiddies or Hacksploitation often depict a formerly glamorous older woman who has become mentally unbalanced and terrorizes those around her. Films who fall under this category must use effects of the Grand Guignol, meaning crass graphic violence, very often used for shock value, and have a leading actress who portrays the character in an exuberant way of Grande Dame, which very often borders then on camp. Film historians agree that the 1962 movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was the fountainhead of this subgenre, creating a wave of more or less successful epigones well into the 1970s. Well, that means it's uh, crazy old ladies and they found out that they could make money with that. <laughs> crazy old ladies getting crazy. Um, exactly. That's basically exploitation. And crazy old star ladies, which is fascinating, of course, thinking of whatever happened to Baby Jane as kind of the, as you said, the fountain at the beginning of that. So it seems that the 60s and 70s were the decade when these movies were particularly successful. And there was a big craze about that. Why do you think it's the 60s and 70s in particular? Why is it that decade? Is it just Baby Jane and its success? Or did it also have some kind of cultural background? Why was there an interest in seeing crazy old stars go after each other? Yeah, I think it's an interesting mixture of both. I think on one hand, it's a changing media landscape. So I think we, we often spoke on this podcast already about the, the rise of television, the decline of cinema in a way in the 50s and 60s. 
And I think in the 60s, there was also, I think for Hollywood in general, the downfall of the Hays Code, like the studio system, all this fell into this time. And I think there were new possibilities to show things on on the big screen, not only in, in a sexual way, but also in a, in a violent way, in a graphic way. And I think, for example, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, Psycho was two years prior to Baby Jane, a huge success. So there were a lot of cultural shifts in the 60s and I think also leading on to the 70s, the subculture and there were a lot of new movements coming in and also the youth culture. And I think psychobities or exploitation movies were so successful because they also somehow subverted the parents' idols in a way. So like elderly Hollywood stars from golden age Hollywood, like Betty Davis or Joan Crawford or Tallulah Bankhead, they were suddenly old and, and crazy and portrayed in, in an un, never seen before way. So I think back in the days, the image of these Hollywood stars was so protected and they were basically seen as gods and untouchable and perfect people. And then all of a sudden, they were there and they looked in terrible makeup and haggard and really in this derogatory term of hags. And I think this is what, what young people especially loved. And I think that's why these movies were also so successful, because this was an added shock value, I think, for, for the culture at the time. Mm -hmm. And also seems the way they were advertised. I watched a number of just the trailers to these movies and it seems to cater to a horror audience generally. And I was also not unsurprised to find that uh, Hammer Studios, for instance, in Britain had produced many of these films as well. So it's kind of in one line between Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, the monsters, and then the psychobities. It seems that that is uh, one through line there and even some of the, the same actors and, and actresses. Of course, it, it also there's a debate online also whether these movies were an exploitation of these old stars and kind of making them look bad mm -hmm. and kind of capping off their careers in a horrible way. Or others would say, well, no, actually it was a, a great chance. You mentioned camp before for those actresses to shine once more. And I think some of them really have made quite a, a second career out of these movies. If I think of Shelley Winters, for instance, that we saw in a couple of these movies, Yet others, like Davis and Crawford, they seem to have been more at the end of their careers. I think particularly Crawford had some really bad examples in her career. But, but I think you know a little bit more about her examples or their examples in particular. So what do you say? Is it more the, the end of their career, or let's say the down point, the low point of their careers, or is it like late highlights for their careers? I would rather argue it was a, a late highlight. I think it was a, a third act for both of them, if we stick now with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis for a moment. Especially Joan Crawford, she had an amazing career through decades and decades, which I think was something completely unheard of at the time and still today is in a way. If you think that she started in silent movies in the late 1920s, she became a star through the 30s. She had a resurrection critically in the late 40s with Mildred Pierce, where she won an Oscar. She had commercial successes through the 50s, where all of her peers were already waning and gone. And then in the late 60s, she had again this boost with Baby Jane. Of course, the quality of the movies, one could argue, where Joan Crawford starred in the 60s, Straight Jacket and all these, these uh, other movies, they were probably B-movies. 
so they weren't huge prestige projects anymore but she had a career she made movies she was successful she still made money yeah it was it was a huge third act for her as well and I think similar also to Betty Davis who then also thanks to Baby Jane was popular again she made a lot of movies also when she was a little bit bound to play creepy old nannies and also more in B movies <laughs> yeah she was still making movies until her her death in the 80s so I think it's it's not just an exploitation of of women but I think it's also a bigger discussion around ageism in Hollywood that an industry or a Hollywood complex sees women as disposable as soon as they turn 40 and I think the exploitation and this is what I talked before subverted this in a way that suddenly also women that were seen as hacks which is basically a, a very negative term they could still be popular and successful um, how do we treat women how do we portray women i think that's where the criticism also comes from that as soon as a woman is older or not sexually attractive anymore she be, she has to be mentally unstable she has to be crazy she has to be a psychopath she has to kill everyone so i think there's an interesting dichotomy there but in terms of giving women work, giving women a platform again. I think these, these psychobities, they, they did their bit there. They certainly did. And I think there's also a strange way or a strange nature of power in these movies. I still find that despite these women seeming apparently crazy or you know off the rocker in so many different ways, they, they have power in their hands. And I think for a while, and I think that's what the subversive aspect of these movies is. You feel that they really through their going crazy or going into that state of mind, they also have control. And I think that must have been also a, a new thing to see women living on their own, often in those <laughs> decrepit mansions, however, and, and looking really, really as if they had gone nuts already. They, they, they had this control over people. But I still think, I mean, we're going to talk about the examples more. There's probably examples where that is more subversive than in others. Because very often, of course, what happens, just like with the monsters in Hammer horror films, they have to die at the end or they have to, you know, things have to go horribly wrong for them towards the end. They have to go completely off the rocker. So I think there's still a mean streak to these movies very often with a few exceptions. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm a little bit torn whether I should see them as that subversive chance for, obviously you said, older actresses to, to work. But on the other hand, also show them in their most atrocious way possible and really uh, giving that that show effect like they're on the circus, basically, like you said at the beginning. I mean, these movies are also very cynical in a way, and I think they're also washed clean from any idealism or or Hollywood glam in a way. So they're really stripping this back. And that makes them also very, very fascinating, I think. And Baby Jane really set a template in a way that I think in many movies, when we watch them, there is always a secret that the character, main character has that will be revealed over the course of the movie. Usually there is a twist in the end, which again changes the things. And, and as I said in the beginning, it's really mixing a lot of film genres together into something quite unique. And I think that's why we're talking about it here today because they're quite fascinating to watch as well. Yeah, and just looking at their titles, I think some of the titles are fantastic from Berserk. You mentioned Straight Jacket, but there are also Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, 
one of my early favorites from that genre or whoever slew on to rue and i think they they try to rip off of the success of uh, whatever happened to baby jane so let's maybe talk about the examples we watched or we know a little bit better i thought we could start with one that i didn't like at all and i thought it was like a really bad example <laughs> from the list and maybe then move our way up to the ones that, that we found better. I, I watched uh, the movie Fanatic, also called Die, Die, My Darling. This gun is dangerous, Patricia. Starring Tallulah Bankhead. Also starring Stephanie Powers as the darling. I'll pay you if you let me out of here. In what way, love? Don't! Die. Die, my darling. Die. Die. What would you do when Alan comes to get me? Beg for mercy? Cry. No one is going to find you here, Patricia. No one mentioned Tallulah Bankhead before, of course, also a big Hollywood star, among others, in Hitchcock's Lifeboat in the, in the 40s. And she is now cast in this Hammer Horror movie production in 1965 alongside Stephanie Powers. And basically, she kidnaps Stephanie Powers in her house and, and keeps her, Powers being the ex of her dead son. And she starts to take revenge on her for all the things she did to her son and it's really this old lady in a mansion she looks awful there i felt the worst qualities of exploitation came out because there was absolutely nothing likable about Tallulah Bankhead there was nothing particularly campy about her she was just like pure evil and acted in a horribly evil way you know physically torturing powers and, and locking her up and really mean spirit in every way and powers at the same time also was not particularly powerful <laughs> because she couldn't free herself. She needed to be freed, of course, by her boyfriend at the end. And it seemed like to portray two women in a very negative way. One that had gone batshit crazy and could just be mean and was you know, also a religious fanatic. That was kind of the implication of one title that was um, used. But on the other hand, there was also this weak woman character who really couldn't fight back properly. And she's held down by these servants, among others, Donald Sutherland, in a very young mm. and very odd role. And there I felt, wow. So that was really Hammer exploiting this genre to the utmost and not really interested in portraying women in any, I don't know, interesting way. It was just like the monster and the victim. And I thought there, that, that was really how exploitation really shouldn't be taken or shouldn't be seen. It's probably mainly known today still because it features Tallulah Bankhead in stripped-down, ugly witch, um, evil witch role and still has some, some classic horror fans or camp fans um, swooning over that. But I, I, unfortunately, I can't say too much. But I think it's, it's, it still seems to me that there are some elements that are somehow typical of the exploitation movies. Sure, I just felt there was no, there's not much sar sarcasm or there's not much camp. It's pretty cynical and pretty dark and goes for these shock effects. 
very often. So it really is a hammer horror film, more so than anything else. And does it, because I think the best exploitation movies, they also play on a meta level. So they also play on the characters or on the personas of the actresses. I don't know if, if this is the case in, in this one with Tula Bankhead, if they play on that as well. Not at all, not at all. And I think the problem is also that Stephanie Powers is, of course, a not a very good opposite character. I always felt the best exploitation actually don't just feature one, but two great characters. Exactly. And I think it, it kind of depends on that. I think exploitation for me, when I went through the lists of movies that are considered exploitation, I always thought, well, no, you need at least one big star and ideally you need two formerly big female stars. That's what the best of exploitation is. And I think Powers is not quite good enough, strong enough, and she's also not old enough. Mm -hmm. It's this young old lady dynamic, which could work out if, if she was a better actress. And I think it doesn't work at all. I know Bankhead mostly from Lifeboat. I haven't seen her in much else. But there, I mean, she is a Marlene Dietrich on speed. She is so snappy and so campy and fantastic with her one-liners. And I was so disappointed in seeing her here. You know, they don't use that potential. Mm -hmm. She really mm -hmm. is just that evil fanatic, completely no irony character. Quite a mischance considering they had her for one of her last roles. Right. Moving on the list, another one that I watched, and now it's getting difficult because I actually did like the other three movies, um, all of them. I'm not sure quite which one I liked more, but let's talk about what's the matter with Helen next, which you've just recently seen. So I'm interested in your impressions based on what we've talked about. Helen. Yes. Do you wish me well? Of course I do, dear. Some people who call themselves well-wishers do crazy things. One cannot be too careful. What's the matter with Helen? What's the matter with Helen? I have to say I quite liked it. I think it's this story of two mothers who have two sons who are convicted of a murder. They go to prison, but then these mothers are still tormented by anonymous calls and attacks. So they decide to leave their hometown and move to Hollywood and they open up a dance school for little wannabe Shirley Temples. So the movie is set in the 30s. And then one of them, played by Debbie Reynolds, the prettier one, she falls in love with a Texas tycoon, whatever, she blooms up, she has a new life. The other mother, played by Shelley Winters, who's a bit more religious, who's a little bit more, already from the get-go, a little bit more or less stable or less happy, she she falls into despair and she has these visions from, from a past that still haunts her. Yeah, I think there are a few things we discussed already that you can clearly see what you just said. There are two strong female characters who play off of each other which are quite nice. And I think the movie also plays quite nicely with the images of the actresses. So Debbie Reynolds, who was this big movie star, musical star in the 50s, 
now in the early 70s she's not that much of a star anymore but still she's tap dancing there her way like <laughs> so she gets some some great dance scenes even a tango scene and everything she's still very good she, she was fantastic she was only in her late 30s early 40s at that time and i was amazed i had just seen her in singing in the rain a couple of weeks before where she's of course you know a spring chicken but here she is still really really good including her her musical numbers absolutely so i think the movie plays really on that as well and then Shelley Winters going slowly but surely crazy <laughs> is also a sight to behold so I think the movie is not that thrilling maybe when it comes to suspense building I think there are other movies which do that better but nonetheless it was really really entertaining to watch and I mean I don't know what you thought of it I did really like it not to begin with I thought this kind of Agatha Christie beginning with the mothers and the murder and the son and the setting before they actually moved to California was a bit dull and depressing and I thought oof where is this gonna go because I didn't know anything about the movie I just saw it's on YouTube and I wanted to to watch it then I started really liking it I think the development of the characters into those different directions you mentioned was really well done Debbie Reynolds wants to be this Jean Harlow starlet and she falls in love and she sees the chances kind of you know to realize her American dream Shirley Winters much more She's probably more down to earth also with what happened to their sons, what David Reynolds kind of wants to forget about. And she becomes more and more religious. There's Agnes Moorhead in a fantastic oh, yes. role as a religious media star. So, so Shelley Winters really becomes attached to that um, radio perform, religious performer. And I think it was kind of touching as well because there was some realism to Shelley Winters' character as well. I thought, yeah, I can see a mother away from home detached from that dark past, slowly going mental, as stuck in that house, never going out. Whereas the other one's career takes off and Shelley Winters just gets to play the piano for those little wannabe baby chains, as you put it so nicely. So I thought it, it worked really well because they were great actresses and the, the roles were well written for them up to the very famous and unfortunately spoiled by the poster ending. I was I was almost cheering at the end when I saw this final scene because I thought, yeah, exactly. That's that's where you have to go. You have to go for the jugular with the exploitation movies. You have to give them something horrible, yet at the same time, something that is grounded in reality. I could see, yeah, Shelley Winter might be pushed there at the end mm -hmm. um, so the build-up was slow and as you said maybe not as artfully done as let's say baby jane but to me it's kind of seemed like bookendish it seemed like the perfect companion piece to baby jane capping off that decade of exploitation really before it ended the next one you also watched recently and i watched recently it's also on youtube and of course this one clearly plays on the whatever happened to baby jane because it's just called whatever happened to aunt alice <laughs> It's not very perceptive of you to minimize the courage that it takes to kill. Why, it's just nerve with a dash of cruelty. Geraldine Page, Ruth Gordon. Whatever happened to Aunt Alice? Where is she? What a fraud you are! I don't care what you believe. Geraldine Page is Mrs. Maribel. Ruth Gordon is Mrs. Dimmock. One of them is a sweet little old lady. The other is a homicidal maniac. One of them is Aunt Alice. Was Aunt Alice the killer or the victim or both? Here we have again two 
I think, great actresses. Maybe not A-list actresses necessarily, but ones that over the years have really done fantastic roles. One is Geraldine Page, who I first saw as also a slightly crazy mother in Woody Allen's Interiors. And here she is, a woman who's deprived at the end of her dead husband's money, because actually he, <laughs> he doesn't have any money anymore. So she's forced to move to the wilderness, I guess, kind of a Arizona. desert. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Arizona. The wilderness AKA of Arizona. AKA the desert, AKA hell. So she has this bungalow in the desert. A short time after that, she has started killing off her housekeepers one by one and kind of burying them in the garden and always planting a new tree. And those trees are kind of also blown crooked by the wind. And it's really like a garden of horror that she has built. And then she gets this new housekeeper. She's played by Ruth Gordon, very famous, of course, for Rosemary's Baby, the, the Satanist neighbor, or Harold and Maude, where she's this uh, mm -hmm. hippie lady falling in love with an 18-year-old. She is the new housekeeper. And then it turns out that she's not only the new housekeeper, but she's also related to the former housekeeper. And she wants to find out what actually happened Actually, she is Aunt Alice. She's Aunt Alice. So the title makes little sense, but I guess it was just an original gag. It was uh, filmed in uh, 1968, so it came out kind of in, in a late 60s context, and you can tell a little bit by some choices of uh, music and, and styles. And that's that's the, the basic setup. I really love that one. It's a, a classic that I've seen a number of years ago. Actually, also in connection with Baby Jane, and I saw it's, it's, it was already available then. And I think there, the dynamic between those two actresses is picture perfect. Mm -hmm. Geraldine Page and Ruth Gordon both are very snappy, very on point. They portray their characters also realistically. They have atrocious wigs all along, really also dressing up these characters uh, in that strange Arizona setting. I think it also works because they're isolated away from the world, except for a few neighbors. They really get to, to have some great banter and some great confrontations that also built really nicely until the end. And I did like the garden of evil aspect of it, this fact that these bodies are buried there and then at one point a dog kind of starts digging in the garden and Geraldine Page goes after him in a really vicious way. She wants so to kill him, I think she wants to kill the dog. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's it's vicious, but it's not disrespectful. I think it portrays these two ladies as really strong characters and has a very ironic twist at the end that makes it so good. I think it's so powerful because it kind of turns everything on its head at the end. What, what, what did you think of it? I agree with most of basically all you said. I think it's also a really great one and it really lives off the tension between the two main actresses. And the interesting thing here is also that you you basically know in the first five minutes that Sherilyn Page is killing off her housekeepers. <laughs> so usually in, in other exploitation movies you have this secret more revealed at the end, what, what exactly happened or what, what, what exactly torments the character. And here it's really interesting that Sherilyn Page doesn't seem to have any remorse about it. She's just like, oh yeah, I'll get me a new housekeeper and then I'll <laughs> see how much money I can get out of them and then I kill them off because I need the money. It's really cynical in a way and also Ruth Gordon and she's also the, the, the nice thing is really they both know what the other one is and what they're doing and it's like this cat and mouse and they're sitting in this ugly late 60s house and um, <laughs> listening to records and drinking uh, some little cocktails and, and, and really hating each other and mm -hmm. I think the tension there it, it's really well done 
I tremendously enjoyed watching this movie. I was surprised, to be honest. No, it's it's a great one. And you can also s somehow tell that Robert Aldrich, who directed Baby Jane, he was also a producer here. So somehow right. he really, he was a bit of an expert in this genre. And you can really tell that he, he gave it a, somehow a bit of a modernized twist to it. And it's a great one. Absolutely. And I think what also rings true here is what we said before about Shelley Winters and other characters. There's some reality to that, you know, this woman who is cheated out of her lifestyle mm -hmm. finds the only way for a woman of her status at that time to do something criminal and whereas Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters they could go to California and start this dance school career Geraldine Page really can't she's a spoiled rich lady who doesn't know what to do so all she thinks of is how can I get some money back why don't you just kill the people who are closest to me which are my housekeepers and of course then the family of the victim comes to haunt her in the form of Ruth Gordon. So I think it also works on a dramatic level. And I think that's so key to exploitation as well. And I think in the last example that we're going to talk about, obviously that's also key front and center is the relationship and the backstory of whatever happened to baby Jane. May I give you the honors of quickly introducing some key facts? I'm sure many listeners do know that film. It's very, very famous, but still let's, let's also give it its, its fair share of introduction. After all those years, I'm still in this chair. Doesn't that give you some kind of responsibility? Jane, I'm just trying to explain to you how things really are. You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. And tell me, what are these awful things I'm supposed to be doing to you? Exactly. So Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is a movie from 1962 and it famously stars Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as two sisters. Crawford is paraplegic and she's in a wheelchair and they live in this old Hollywood mansion and Crawford can't leave the house and Betty Davis plays this former child star, super famous as a kid and then fallen from grace. Yeah, and, and they basically live in this house and they have this toxic relationship with each other as Crawford is really dependent on Davis's support and help and then she really uses a lot of evil and vile tricks to to torment her sister for an incident that happened in their both's past and which is also related to Crawford being in the wheelchair. It's basically a thriller, it's a psycho thriller and it lives, as I said before, a lot of the personas of the actresses who play the characters i mean we could have an own podcast on this movie really but so i'll try to keep it brief but there's really a well-documented love-hate relationship between crawford and davis that naturally was over the years written by the media but of course they they were not best friends let's put it that way this is something the movie feeds off that you apparently think these two rivals that hated each other all through their career now they're smashing each other's heads in in this movie so there's <laughs> A lot of beautiful beautiful meta subtext in this movie it's very thrilling but it also says something about ageism in hollywood about how women are portrayed how women are treated it's a bit hammy at times and very campy i think that's why the movie also has a huge lgbtq following because these roles are played so grand and so exaggerated especially by davis it's really every every drag queen's dream but <laughs> 
No, I, I, I love this movie so much, so I don't know where to stop and where to start. <laughs> but I would just say this. It's a great movie. And I think it's just worth watching for the two performances of these actresses. Yeah, and I, I think just to add to that, I think what grounds the movie is that Davis is so grand and Crawford is so relatable. Her suffering is so relatable. I think it wouldn't work yeah. with two Betty Davis type performances. I think it works so well because they both play the extremes here with with us really yeah. siding for Crawford for most of the film and really relating to her and, and feeling her suffering and she, she she does it so well she she's such a Betty Davis stands out so much but Crawford is great in, in this one as well and I think like you said it's the most meta one I think many also try to bring back their exploitation into that show business realm like with what's the matter with Helen where they also try to do that to really also talk about ageism Hollywood in directly through that and then have these stars be a little bit like they were in their former career just like Debbie Reynolds it's basically playing herself and here Betty Davis obviously is also playing in a very exaggerated version of herself a persona which she I think would follow through with for the rest of her career in a way that grand campy dame that appeared on every television show up until her very death was was very mm-hmm. much inspired I think by her success as baby Jane even though famously she did not win the Academy Award <laughs> for the role we also have to probably mention here that of course there's an entire miniseries that deals just with the, the making of whatever happened to baby Jane feud by Ryan Murphy starring Susan Sarandon as Betty Davis and Jessica Lang as Joan Crawford and I think it's also one that we would recommend strongly especially as at the tail end of, of talking about these movies which gives great context also to not only those two actresses but a lot of stars and, and people in Hollywood making that movie or talking about this movie around a bit and any any word on on that would you recommend it as a companion piece as well absolutely I mean I think as with any Ryan Murphy production there were some liberties taken I think he he also spices up the feud a bit more than it potentially was in real life but I think what the miniseries does so well is really giving you the context how this movie came to be made how much Crawford and Davis had to fight at Warner Brothers to have this movie made because no one really believed in them anymore everyone thought they were washed up has-beens and the movie itself is is a is a small production it's not a big hollywood thing so this this is what i really like about the series that really shows you the the thinking the machinations behind the hollywood industry and how much these women had to fight for a movie to be made where they are starring and they are past 50. we're just talking a lot about this sexism and ageism and misogyny in, in hollywood at the time and Unfortunately, still we we have these issues up to this day. Jessica Lang and Sarandon are great as Crawford and Betty Davis, respectively. And I think there are also a lot of great supporting actors. There's Alfred Molina as or Robert Aldrich or Stanley Tucci as Jack Warner and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Olivia de Havilland. So mm. it's a well cast, well done probably a bit glossy production but definitely a great companion piece and talking of companion pieces i think one thing that still sticks with me with whatever happened to baby chain you saying that it's kind of like a small production black and white production it is also a great companion piece like you said to psycho at the time because both took a great risk they were yeah. made with a low budget black and white but for whatever happened to baby chain contrary to what we see in feud of course we also understand the power of the black and white and i think the movie is also so good visually to me because 
always I always remember this starkly white face of Betty Davis, but then also the stark black hair of Joan Crawford. So there's also this dichotomy of these two colors or the style in which is made and the effect, the powerful effect it has. So it's the psycho of exploitation, obviously the most famous one, but it was they're also greatly inspired, made around the same time. Maybe as a, as a final question now that we've dealt with four examples in more detail, we've mentioned that this genre was mostly successful in the early 60s to early 70s maybe, but have there been great exploitation movies since? And maybe as a follow-up question, are there still exploitation movies today? Could there be still successful today? How do you see the situation of exploitation, especially because of course women's role in film have so dramatically changed since the 60s and 70s? Yeah, I think we, we spoke about a few examples that came after Baby Jane, and I think there are many more we could mention. I think the, of course, the direct follow-up was Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which was also a production again, directed by Robert Aldrich, and they wanted to team up Davis and Crawford again, but then famously Crawford dropped out and was replaced by Olivia de Havilland. That's also a great, very gothic, southern gothic, atmospheric exploitation movie, I would say. Yeah, all the movies basically Crawford did in the 60s are somehow <laughs> exploitation <laughs> movies. So Berserk or Straight Jacket or all these ones. Interestingly enough, I think every now and then you have these more recent movies that, that take up this trope of the grand guignol and, and the mentally unstable elderly lady. I think Misery in the 90s mm. with Kathy Bates could be aligned to this genre in a way. Also Notes on a Scandal with Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett also a little bit plays with these tropes of an elderly lady losing it and terrorizing people with a secret. But I think in a way the classical exploitation I think was really of its time because it was really also the era where these golden age Hollywood stars were aging and then they could be used to that shock effect to, to fit into that mold of oh my god this was once this most beautiful woman and now look at her. <laughs> I mean as, as misogynistic as this sounds but I think this was also part of the fascination. Yeah, it, this has so much changed that we don't really can create the same terror in a way or the same shock value. Yeah. So I would say it's very time specific of, of these 10, 15 years that we would have discussed. Yeah, you can't do this anymore. I was just thinking. And if you do it, it has this tinge of, of irony, of camp, of kind of being over the top and supposed to be funny, which I think with exploitation, it, it was not originally meant to be funny. And I think today you can almost do only a parody of that. And I think there have been lots of, of parodies of that. Or you then go into, um, like you said, with Misery, with Notes on a Scandal, into more complex characters that are maybe not just like mm -hmm. two-dimensional, like, like we said with, for instance, Tallulah Bankhead or some of the others. It, I think it's a good sign. I think, you know, women's possibilities in, in Hollywood obviously have become much better, even though there's still, of course, discussion of what women past 40 or 50, what kind of career they can still have. But I think there's many more different roles also in other countries in other independent movies and tv shows and netflix streaming productions i think the variety has become so much bigger so i think i consider these exploitation kind of as a really nice pocket of movies like you said that package of 10-15 years we can marvel at the fact that they did these for real, that they were serious about most of them. We can enjoy the multi-layeredness of them because we see them from our perspective now. And we can kind of be critical of, of how women were seen at the time. 
and also kind of that. That's kind of also the guignol from, from our perspective to say, oh, wow, that's the way mm-hmm. they made movies back then. And these are such extreme examples, just mm-hmm. like horror movies as well. So a really great time document that I truly enjoyed going back to, but also something that you kind of shudder at and you think, whoa, really? They did that? And, and poor John Crawford and poor Betty Davis, I don't know if they were poor, but they had to play these for the rest of their lives just because they were so successful at doing that. So yeah, really enjoyed, but I'm, I'm kind of glad exploitation is more or less dead so yeah whatever happened to exploitation um, maybe it's good whatever happened to it exactly absolutely so yeah i think this has been a lot of fun absolutely thank you so much sam for discussing this little niche subgenre that is very close to our hearts thank you very much for listening and we see you next time again when we are ready for close-up i've written a letter